0: Hey, I normally say take your Bible and turn to, but again, today I'm going to be all over the place, and and you'll know why in a minute, so just take notes, hang with me today, because I'm going to finish up the last sermon in the Ultimate Guide to the Christian Life. It's been 10 sermons. That's probably the longest sermon series I've ever done uh, in 10 sermons, but I want to wrap it up today, because we've been talking about how to elevate your walk with God, right? Like, how do we go from point A to point B and get to that place in our life we feel like God's really speaking our heart and really is, um, you know, we're walking with him on a daily basis, basis, that deep, intimate walk with God. Well, you don't get that automatically. There's some disciplines you have to go through. That that life has to be constructed a certain way. And so we've been talking about, you know, some safeguards to put in, some habits to put in, those kind of things we have to do. Well, today I want to preach on this subject. I've, I've saved it for last. And that is a marriage made in heaven. I want to spend a few minutes today talking about, Marriage between a husband and wife. So I'll explain why in a moment, but just hang with me for a little bit. I read this story back in, well, I read it in January of this year and just saved it about a Missouri husband and wife who'd been married for 65 years and they died just hours apart from each other holding hands in a nursing home. And when I saw the stories in the St. Louis dispatch, when I saw the story, I I clipped it out and saved it because it, it told the story of Jack, uh, uh, Morrison and his wife, Harriet, they met years ago when he was a bus driver chauffeuring her father on a trip with a drum and bugle corps, and they met that day. As a matter of fact, they had their first date on Halloween night, 1955, According yesterday, yesterday, according to the article. Sue Wagner, their niece, who was raised by them, uh, was interviewed for it. And they said, Jack and Harriet were just one of those special couples. Like he, he always made coffee for her every morning. He would go with her to get her perms and would wait for hours outside the shop while she did it. And then they would run errands uh, together. They lived that way for 65 years, just madly, madly in love. And then last year, 2019, at the, at the end of it, uh, they were... Um, Uh, Both of them took a fall just a few weeks apart, and they both wound up in a nursing home just four doors down from each other. It was on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 2019, that Sue told the St. Louis dispatch that Harriet had stopped eating and drinking. And so when they told Jack that, Jack also, for whatever reason, stopped eating and drinking. You go to January the 10th, Sue Wagner got a phone call and said, it doesn't look like Harriet's going to live very much longer. Do you mind if we take the furniture out of her room and we wheel Jack in beside her so she can spend the last few hours of her life side by side with him? And she said, no, of course not. And so they did. They, they wheeled him in. That's just a photo of them a few weeks before that. They wheeled Jack in. A storybook romance. And after 65 years, Jack and Harriet held hands. Now, they had said Harriet was, going, was the one near death. But Jack died first that day. Wasn't near death, but died first at 86 years old. And Harriet, 83, died just a little over an hour later. 65 years together, died hand in hand, literally, hours apart from one another. I read that story, and I mean, I'm I'm a little bit of a romantic at heart, but surely that tugs at your heartstrings too, right? Isn't that kind of what we all want? I mean, isn't that... If you could have mapped that out when you were getting married, you may not have articulated that way, but you you could have come pretty close that if you're married, we we all want that kind of storybook romance. How great would it be for us reading that about you? A a romance story that has, look, that has a story, an interesting story for its beginning, right? You're telling your grandkids and your great-grandkids how you met. A, A romance story that was full of love, that has its ups and downs, but you really drew closer to one another and love grew stronger during that time and then a romance that ended in love that's lasted for a lifetime. And so you've got this great beginning, this, this, this incredible middle and this fantastic end. I mean, right, they make movies out of stuff like that. Like that's, 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 that's got Lifetime movie written all over it right there. But can I tell you, honestly, that's getting harder and harder to find. Those kind of stories, those kind of romances are getting more and more difficult to find. And truth be known, 2020, COVID has not helped us very much at all, right? Because more time spent at home has impacted marriages during COVID-19. Some for the better, right? Some for the worse. Some of you are like, oh, yay, my spouse gets to work from home. And some of you are like... Huh. So you're gonna work from home now, is that the way it's gonna be? Is that like twenty four hours a day? Is that what you're saying? Look, it's 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 not it's not it's not going well for marriages in America. As a matter of fact, the latest research we set, we find says that from March to June of this year, think with me, from March to June of this year. Divorce filings were up in America 34% based over the same time period in 2019. Now, let that sink in for just a moment. We're just talking March to June. We're not talking July, August, September. Lord knows what's going on right now. But from March to June, divorce filings were up 34%. That's an enormous number over the same period last year. COVID is really (laughs) making things not so very good sometimes. So how can you manage to not just survive but thrive? So here's what I want to do today. I want to draw on a wealth of biblical Relationship advice. I'm going to be very topical today because that's really feel like what I need to do. And, and let me say this, I've spent over 25 years as a pastor and longer than that in ministry. And here's what I know, man, when you pastor, you, you deal with a lot of marriage issues and troubles. And so some of what I'm talking about today, obviously I have Bible for it. I'm drawing it out of the Bible, but some of it is just some of the main issues I've seen couples deal with over, over time. And so I just want to draw on that experience I have, and I want to draw on the Bible. And I know some of you are thinking, some of you are sharp. You're thinking, wait a minute, preacher, why do I need to include a sermon on marriage when you're preaching on the ultimate guide to the Christian life? Like, you've figured it out, right? Why in the world are you talking about marriage? Shouldn't we stay with more spiritual things, right? Like, shouldn't we be talking about prayer and Bible? I, I get all that, but look, the fact is the devil often attacks our spiritual life through our marriage, like, and by the way, don't look at your spouse and say amen when I said that. Hang with me for a second because here's what happens. We have our, uh, we got our Bible reading down. We've got our prayer time down. We got our church down. We got our giving down. We got our, we got all these things down and we are really conquering the world in our Christian life, except for our marriage. And we've let it neglect. And you know what the devil does? He looks for any chink in the armor he can find. And there's been many a people who were on fire for God whose marriage ruined that. I, mean, I named pastor after pastor who was on fire for God and his marriage ruined that. And the devil can't get you to sin. If he can't get you to fall, uh, immor- he'll work his way in through his marriage and he will mess up your home and he will mess up your Christian life. So yes, marriage needs to be included in a sermon series on the ultimate guide to the Christian life. So I want to give you five areas today to make your marriage a marriage made in heaven. Here we go. Number one, how do you do that? Number one, put yourself on the same team. Now, we see this in Genesis 2.24. This is the original statement on marriage, right? This is the original married couple. It all started right here. And look what he said. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become, say it with me, one flesh. Say it again. One flesh. Say it one more time. One flesh. We, we, a lot of things we can consider right here when we talk about marriage, right? Like we can talk about leave his father and mother. You know what's so funny about leave his father and mother? It was Adam and Eve. They didn't have a father and mother. It's the only man ever been born that married didn't have a mother in law, right? Ever because he's uh, he had no mother in law. They didn't have a father and mother. Like that's good. That's good marriage advice, right? That you should leave your father and mother. And all the fathers and mothers said, amen, right? Like, we're good with that, y'all. Like, we're fine with it. We're fine with it, right? But, but you leave your father and mother and you, you become one flesh. Now, a married person, uh, you, you read that in Hebrew, and the marriage person, it means that they've got to be united or bonded to the other spouse, the verb in the, in, the Greek, in the Hebrew means to stick to or to cling to someone else. The phrase one flesh or united into one speaks of total life together. That is physical life and spiritual life and emotional life and intellectual life. All come together as one. That you come together as one. Bonded together on the same team. Living in God's world. Serving God. Listen, serving God as one unit to become one flesh. Here's what the Bible is telling us. That if your marriage, it's in the very introductory statement on marriage, that if your marriage is going to be a match made in heaven, can I tell you this? As a husband and wife, you have to be on the same team. That's what one flesh means. Too many times marriages are fighting against each other like you're on opposing sides. I'm going to tell you, when you have that mindset, your marriage is never going to be what it ought to be. If you think in individual terms of, uh, of winning and losing, in regards to your spouse, you both lose. You only win when your spouse does. You only win when your husband does. You only win when your wife does. Why? Because you are on the same team. When you're fighting against each other all the time, when you view them as your opposition, every mindset will crash your marriage. When you think your wife is your opposition, it's never going to work. When you think your husband is your enemy, it's never going to work. As long as you have this opposing team's mindset, and I see it in marriages all the time, that you have this opposing team's mindset, that it's her versus him, that it's it's him versus her, and they have this mindset like they're on different teams, and they talk that way, and they act that way, and they conduct themselves that way, and here's why God said, no, you are on the same team. And that opposing team mindset will crash your marriage. I want to be honest, you don't see see two teammates on the same sports team going head-to-head against each other. Well, we did this one time, actually. It was 2013 in the swamp in Florida when Will Muschamp was the coach of the Florida Gators. And Georgia Southern came to town, a team that Florida should have beat handily. They had never beat a Division I opponent ever until that day, and they upset Florida at home 26-20. to 20. And Georgia Southern's quarterback, Kevin Ellison, ran 15 times for 118 yards, two touchdowns, but here's the incredible thing. georgia He did not complete a pass all day, and Georgia Southern did not have one yard passing all day long. And that should have been the storyline of the game. That was the most amazing thing. That never happens. That was the most amazing thing in the game. That should have been the storyline. But that wasn't the storyline. There was one image that came out from that day that has been played over and over and over again since 2013. And this one image epitomized what went wrong that day. I'm going to let you watch it on video And see if you pick it up. Just watch it. Have you seen it yet? Some of you have seen it. Some of you have seen it. I'm going to just show it over and over again until you get it. Right? Some of you have seen it. Now we'll do a little commentary. you two got it football players. Blocking each other. Now watch it in slow-mo. It is actually two really good blocks. I know for some reason it was fuzzy up on the big screen. Sorry about that. But it, it was Uh, Two really good blocks. The problem with the block is they were blocking each other. And that that day on ESPN, ESPN just kept showing the play over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because two players on the same team are not supposed to block each other. that one play summed up what happened, what went wrong that day. And I tell you, that sums up what's going wrong in a lot of marriages as well. The problem with a lot of marriages in this room and watching online is that while you are supposed to be on the same team, you're fighting each other like you're on different teams, and while you're supposed to be on the same team physically and emotionally and intellectually, spiritually, no, no, you're going to each other all the time, and I'm going to tell you, that's not how a team acts. Teams don't do that. When you're on the same team, you're supposed to support each other. When you're on the same team, you're supposed to be honest with each other. When you're on the same team, you're supposed to pick each other up, encourage one another, give maximum effort when you're on the same team. When you're on the same team, you root for each other. You work hard to improve your game, to make the team better. When you're on the same team, you help each other. You lead by example. You improve the other one. You don't blame the other one. I want to ask you, are you and your spouse on the same team? One reason you don't have a marriage made in heaven is that you're playing the game like you're on the opposite team and stop it. It happened somewhere along the way, it became a mindset you developed, and somehow your marriage turned into him against her, or she against he, or or whatever the right pronouns are. You turn on each other, and though you may be married, you have forgotten the Bible says you are one flesh. You are on the same team. Second thing I want to tell you to make your marriage great is number two, stop the me stuff. Here it is, 1 John 3.16. It says, this is how we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And there's a two-letter word in the Bible that, there's two-letter word in marriage that ruins a marriage more than anything, and it's the word me. We get consumed with how me is being treated, we get consumed with me rights, me hurts, me disappointments, me expectations, me needs, me plans. And I want to tell you, once you've been bitten by the me bug, you get the me disease and that's all you can think about is me. And the only lens you have in your life is the one that filters everything through the lens of me and you become blind to you. And here's what the Bible says. Now look at 1 John 3.16. Now let me, let me tell you what this verse says. This verse says that you should lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you're in a room somewhere, can you just spend one, two, three seconds? Look around the room for a minute. Look around the room. Just look around the room. Don't look at me. Look around the room. If you're at home, look around the room. Do whatever you got to do. Wherever you are, look, look, look. So those people around you, the Bible says you're to give your lives for them. That's what church means. But man, if it's true for Christianity in general, how much more true is it for your marriage? I mean, how much time do you spend laying down your life for your spouse? The fact is, if we were as consumed as how we're treating uh, the other one as how we are being treated... You'd have a marriage made heaven so like, uh, Husband, if you were as concerned about how you were treating her as she was treating you, your marriage would be fine. Wife, if you were as concerned about how you're treating him as he is treating you, your marriage would be fine. So here's the homework today. Go home and become consumed with them, not me. Third thing I want to tell you is this. Peace, is, peace of mind is better than a piece of your mind. Look at Romans 14, 9. Teen. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. I mean, the verse couldn't be no place. You don't even need me to preach it, right? That this is the pursuit of our lives in relationships ought to be peace, not conflict. Peace, not conflict. Peace, not conflict. And I'm afraid that we're caught up in the culture of today that we often blanket our sin. And this is going to hurt. This gonna a, I'm saying some hard things today, but this, this strikes all of us me, you, everybody hanging. But we, We blanket our sin in statements like this in our marriage. Well, I'm just being real. Well, I'm just being transparent. Hey, I'm just genuine. What what you see is what you get. And all of that becomes an excuse for being rude, unkind, and unchristlike. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being genuine unless you're using quote-unquote genuineness to be rude and unkind. If you're walking around... Trying to give somebody a piece of your mind? There's no way that represents a Christ-like Christian attitude. Because so here's what Jesus said: Jesus said, in Matthew five nine, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. Not the conflict makers, not the peace takers, not the strife producers." They get no praise from the Lord at all. Here's what Jesus said. Be a passionate pursuer of peace. Because I want to tell you, in your marriage, love can flourish in peace. Romance can flourish in peace. Joy can flourish in peace. And so here's what I want to have you do. Go home today and passionately pursue peace. Here's what that means. Refuse to argue. Refuse to do it. Like You know Wife, you know his buttons, right? You know how to push them. And sometimes you do it just for the fun of it. You know her buttons, right? You know what they are. You know what is an instant argument in your house. There are those topics that are instant arguments. Can I tell you this? Refuse to take the bait. Refuse to disagree. You say, preacher, what if, what, what, what if she's wrong, right? You can be in love or right. You can't be both. You choose. Just choose to be in love. Don't raise your voice. Keep your opinions to yourself and just see what happens. Be a passionate pursuer of whatever promotes peace. It's what Paul said. Let us pr- pursue what promotes peace. You've got to ask yourself in every situation, is what about to come out of my mouth, but is, does it promote peace or conflict? And if it's conflict, shut up. That couldn't be any more plain. In the Greek, that means shut up. (laughs) All right, number four, this this is going to get me in trouble. Hang with me for a second. Number four, you can nag them, your marriage, to death. Now, ladies, hang with me. This verse I'm going to read says, wife, I get it, all right? I'm going to apply it to both. And I said to my wife, I, you know, last, this week, I'm like, baby, I'm going to say this. Are you okay with that? She said, I'm good with that. She said, I, I, I get it. It's in the Bible. You got to preach it, uh, you know, whatever. And so uh, she said, like, you, you, you have at it. So ladies, I'm going to apply it to both of you. Hang with me because there's one verse in the Bible that uses the word nag. And like, I feel like if the Bible uses the word nag that one time, we at least I'll look at it. So it's in Proverbs 21, nine, ready? Better to live on the corner of a roof. That's pretty funny right there. I don't care who you are. <laughs> then to share a house with a, say it with me, nagging spouse. Right? I mean, if the Bible uses the word nag and we're very familiar with the word nag, like if we're using the word nag and you've, you've said to your husband, quit nagging me, and you said to your wife, quit nagging me. Like the Bible uses that verse, like we should use that verse. Because even though it's only used one time, well, you know, what? actually, it's used, actually, I forgot, it's used two times. Uh, same chapter, Proverbs twenty-one nineteen. Better to live in a wilderness than with a nagging and hot-tempered why? I've actually written in my Bible, like this is my daily Bible I use and preach from. I've written in my Bible Solomon having a bad day with his woman today, right? It's in the boat, it's in the same chapter. So now look, if the Bible uses Two verses. I mean, it's rare that you have two verses that use the word nag. Like, you have to pay attention. When the Bible says, hey, better to live on a roof than nagging wife. Better to live in the woods. We live in the woods, men. Live in the woods. And don't say amen. Then with a the nagging wife, like, Bible says that twice. I've got to preach it, right? Would y'all agree i got to preach it? Say amen, right? Bible says that twice. Well, actually, it says it a third time. And... Um, Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen says this an endless dripping on a rainy day and a nagging wife are alike <laughs> who gets to write that and live like this is the last proverb that he wrote his wife killed him after this so so like I mean like like, you'd agree, right? I can't be a man of God unless I preach. If the Bible says it three times that, look, I'd rather live on a rooftop than with a nagging wife, or I'd rather be in the woods than with a nagging wife, or, you know what, honey, your nagging is like a leak in the roof, and just, it, you're just, three, actually, actually, four times in the Bible, four times in the Bible, Proverbs 25, 24, better to live on the corner of a roof, he's back up on top of the house again, better to live on the corner of a roof. Than to share a house with a nagging wife. I mean, come on. Four times in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs says, nagging is not. Well, actually, actually, if we're going to be truthful, there is this one more time Proverbs 19, 13. A foolish son in his father's ruin, and a wife's nagging is an endless dripping. And no, just five times. That was it. Five times. Five times it says nagging can ruin your marriage. I'm telling you, somebody in Proverbs needed some marriage counseling in a hurry. Like that was not going well. And lazy put it all on you, but I want to tell you it can apply to all of us because I want to tell you you can literally nag your marriage to death. And a husband can do it and a wife can do it. Let's define nagging. It's the constant pointing out the other person's faults. It's the constant talking about the other person's shortcomings. It's the constant belittling of them even when they try. It's the constant correcting them. Listen, it's the passive aggressive attacks that go on all the time. It's constantly you, 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 you. It's a total focus on the other person's wrong. And I want to tell you, it will always 100% of the time kill and ruin your a study in psychological science discovered that the best arguers in a marriage, according to the study, they studied couples who were fighting. That, that'd be a treat, wouldn't it? They studied couples who were fighting. And the couples who fought the best, and here's how they define the best they came up with the best solutions to their disagreement. I love that, right? The couples that came up, came up with the best solutions to their disagreement arguments used one word over and over again. You want to know what the word was? Get this we. Not you, we. We. That when they were arguing, they, they viewed themselves as being on the same team. Like they, they, they were in this together and it was a we argument. And the we arguments produced the best results. But get this, the couples that produced the worst solutions to argument and tended to be more criticizing, more disagreeable, justifying their own wrongs and otherwise just unpleasantly and negative. You know what word they used over and over again? You. Nagging is a you-sayer. Nagging is a you-sayer. Go home and analyze your language, and you're going to discover that if you're using you a lot and you're pointing your finger that direction, listen, you are nagging. So here's what I want you to do. Go home and point out your own mistakes, your own shortcomings. Be harder on yourself than you are on your spouse. And if both of you do that, the marriage wins. The fifth thing I want to tell you about marriage, and you can nag them to death. But number five, you can love them to death. And I mean that in a good way. Right, that's a phrase we use, I, I love you to death. But it's actually in the Bible, if you look for it. Solomon, Song of Solomon, which is the love book in the Bible, uh, chapters eight, verse six and seven says this. Two two lovers talking to each other. Set me as a seal on your heart and as a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol or the grave. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. For love is as strong as death. Here's what they were saying. Those those, that in that marriage relationship they're describing, uh, they were saying that love can defeat all of our enemies. That nothing thrown at the marriage can conquer your marriage when love is present. And we all agree with that, right? Can we all say amen? Amen. Say it with me. Amen. Right? We all agree with that, right? And you agree with me. But you're wrong in your interpretation of the word love. And that's why it's not working. The reason it's not working for you is you define love as a noun, you translate it into a feeling, and then you have no control over your feelings because your feelings are subjective to outside and external stimuli, right? And that allows you to say things like this, I don't love him anymore. Because you're using the word love as a noun in the sentence, even though in the sentence it's a verb, you're still identifying with it as a noun. And a noun, you don't control. When you translate the noun into a feeling, you don't control it. Well, you have the totally wrong definition of love because love, especially in the Bible, but really anywhere, love is a verb. And it's an action. And you have total And 100% control over your actions. So you can choose to love anyone you want to love. So let me tell you how we misinterpret it. Wrong is this. I love them when I feel it. Right? That is feelings first, action second, and that's wrong. Feeling first, action second is wrong. So we say this, well, preacher, well, I, here's what I'm doing. I, I'm praying for God to give me feelings back for my husband or my wife. Well, that's not going to happen. That doesn't work that way. God won't even do that. And that's not the way he designed the world to work. The world's not designed that way. You don't pray for feelings to come. Matter of fact, there are Bible verses that say the opposite of that. There are Bible verses that say do what you ought to do and the feelings come later because God designed it that way. It is never feelings first, action second. And I can prove that in so many areas of life, right? Like, like, like you don't, it's the best example I think of. Every time I tithe, uh, you don't go, I love God so much I'm going to tithe. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says tithe and you'll love God so much. Do you know that? Matthew, where your treasure is, there your heart goes. Where your treasure is, there your heart goes. Your, your, your treasure doesn't follow your heart. Your heart follows your treasure. So all you got to do is take action and put your treasure in the right place and your heart follows it. Same thing true in marriage. So here's the right version of love. I'll love them until I feel like it. I'll love them until I So here, here's here's the deal. Action first, feeling second. Is what it means to love someone. Actions first, feelings second. Say, you know, when you got married, hey, when you got married, you walked down the aisle. You, you might, I don't know if the preacher articulated this well, but here's what happened. You kind down the married. When he said, "Do you love one another?" He was not asking you, and, and he should have made it clear. He was not asking you, "Do you have feelings for each other?" Right, because the feelings come and go. Can we get amen on that? Like, sometimes the feelings are not as good. The feelings are going to end two days after this day when he rolls over with bad breath and stinky feet. The feeling is kind of just drafted away. Like, it's gone a little bit, right? It's gone. She rolls over, no makeup, no hair, like, I mean, hope she has hair, but I mean, like, no hair fixed. So so much I can say, and I'm not going to. You know, the feelings can be like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, because he's not asking you, do you feel as if you're in love? He's asking you, do you commit to love one another as action until the day you die? That's love. You say, well, preacher, I can't, I can't do that because I, I, I just don't love me. Do you know that you have total control over who you love? The Bible tells us that, and, and so does research. Hey, close your Bibles. Let, let me tell you a story because this is going to take... Uh, about a minute. Don't leave me because it's so, so good. You need to hear what I'm about to say. A study came out a few years ago. It was in the New York Times, a very famous article. You can Google it and find it by psychologist Mandy Lynn Catron And she had done some research on a study that was done by a guy named Arthur Aaron at Stony Brook University, right? And his premise was that you could fall in love with anybody in the right circumstances. So he had done this research, Arthur had. Um, And he had taken two groups of strangers and 50% male, female. And he had taken one group and he'd put them in a room and he told them they were to sit across from, you know, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, just partner up with somebody. And over in one room, we went to talk for 45 minutes, just chit chat. Now over in another room, he gave them a list of 36 questions that, that became more and more intimate the farther down the list you went. And so in this other room two strangers, I mean strangers, there's a bunch of them but strangers sitting across from each other they had to go down this list and take turns asking each other the 36 questions and at the end of it they had to stare at each other in the eyes for four minutes Not in the eyes, directly in the eyes for four minutes and he wanted to see if he could force people to fall in love, that you could fall in love with anyone and, and, and it, it worked the people looking in the eye people Six months later, one of the couples was already married. They were total strangers. Others were together. So the author of the New York Times, she's like, I just don't think that can work. And so she went on a blind date and took the 36 questions with her, explained to the blind date what they wanted to do, and then they stared at each other for four minutes directly in the eyes, and they're still together today questions like this. Nothing radical about the questions, but given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? If a crystal ball could tell you the truth about yourself, your life, the future, or anything else, what would you want to know? How close and warm is your family? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people's? What if anything is too serious to be joked about? Of all the people in your family whose death you would find most disturbing, whose death would you find most disturbing and Why? Why? You can Google the question. Type in 36 questions, love, marriage. It'll, it'll pop up probably. Here's what I going to tell you. Two strangers can fall in love by asking a few questions and looking in their eyes. Listen to me, church. If you're a Christian, you have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You have more than that. Yeah, look at the questions. I love it. Yeah, look at each other's eyes. I love it. But how about listen to what the Bible says? How about pulling out the Spirit of God who you would claim in any other life, I can do all things through Christ, but I can't fall in love with her. I mean, i do anything in Christ, but I can't love him. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Because love's not a feeling. Love is not a noun. It's, it is a choice. I choose to love him. I choose to lay down my life for her. And if two people are doing that together, you have a marriage made in heaven. And I want to tell you, length of marriage does not equal quality of marriage. right? Quantity does not equal quality. You want to have not just length, you want quantity. You want to roll over next to that person in the mornings and love the person you're looking at. Or love it that you're looking at that person. It can happen. If you say to me, well, I don't love him anymore, can I tell you, that's, that tells me more about your character than it does your romance life. Well, I don't love her anymore. That's more about your character than your romantic life. You can if you choose to, stand with me. If you're online, don't go anywhere because heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around Unless you're here today and you're not a Christian. and If you're here today and you're not a Christian, would you look at me? And every other head bowed, every other eye closed. But if you're at Rossville, if you're online and you're not a Christian, would you look at me? Because, I mean, I'm going to tell you, yes, it can be done and not be a Christian. But it can be done so much better and so much. God invented marriage. God designed it. It's only when you follow his plan. And his plan starts with you becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian if you've never done that today, you can do it today. And it's as simple. Look right this way as ABC. If you're you're a Christian, you pray. But if you're not a Christian, look here. ABC, admit, believe, and confess. Admit that you're a sinner and can't work your way or earn your way to heaven. We all had to admit that. I, I wouldn't trust the best five minutes of my life to get me into heaven. And B, you've got to believe Christ died on the cross for your sin, rose again the third day. We call that the gospel. And C, you've got to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe you need to do that. God brought you here. God brought you online. God brought you to Rossville just for this day because he wanted me to, he wanted you to hear me say this thing here at the very end. So have you done it? You can do it today. As a matter of fact, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's not the prayer you say. The prayer will not save you, but the intent of your heart is to trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life and give your life to him. The prayer just helps us articulate it. And chances are God brought you here and that's already on your heart. And if it is, bow your heads with me and pray this prayer dear lord jesus i know that i'm a sinner and i can't earn my way into heaven but i know that christ died on the cross for my sin and rose again the third day and just now I invite christ into my life to save me forgive me of my sin and to give me a home in heaven hey if you just prayed that prayer with me for the first time look right this way because i want you to take out your phone right now or today and text I did to the number 97,000. If you're watching this sermon a week from now, a month from now, whenever, text I did to 97,000. Because we're going to send you a booklet in the mail. We want to celebrate with you. And we're going to send you a booklet in the mail that tells you the next steps to take in the Christian life. Because you'll be confused if you don't get it. So just text I did, no spaces, to 97,000. Now every head bowed, every eye closed. This morning I'm going to ask you if your marriage needs help to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you if your marriage needs tweaked, raise your hand. I'm going to assume all of us want to have a better marriage. but Would you spend a minute just praying yourself? Father, I, Lord, I know, Lord, online in the rooms that there are, there are people here today who, whose marriage may have already disintegrated, may have already happened. But Lord, I know you can change that and you can fix that and you can make that better. Lord, there are people in the room that their marriage is on the precipice of falling apart and Lord you can stop that and there are people in the room whose marriages just need to be better it's not bad it just needs to be better you laid out today I laid out pure Bible on how we can make them better and so Lord I pray that as husbands we would own that I pray that as wives we would own that today and let us take the word of God and take it home to our marriage and help us be different today. Knowing that as our marriages get better, our families get better, and our church gets better, and the gospel spreads farther when the devil can't work his way in into our marriage. So may it be so today. May it be so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.